right now our marketing department, yeah, for a hundred person company is zero, right? We don't have one marketing person in that role. And I haven't had a person in that role for the last three months. I'm posting the LinkedIn posts of our company. My BDRs and BDMs are the ones liking on behalf of Uptick and commenting on behalf of Uptick. I think it's super important that you're still doing the doing in some way or form and your team will love you and appreciate you. And also you don't need to outsource everything. Like you can do so much mm -hmm. more than you think. Welcome Roy, excited to have you on the show, mate. We'll get right into it. So what led you to Uptick in first place? Firstly, just to start off with uh, having me on the podcast. Secondly, I've spoken to both of you at a personal level, um, even while we're made competitors, which is pretty cool. Uh, guys, and I've looked up to Simbro, a real cool growth story that we're trying to follow. But yeah, what led me to Uptick after university, honestly, it was just all luck. I was working part-time during uni at a property management company and I was in charge of looking at IT systems and they had a spin-off fire company that, that they started as a property management company and they were looking at softwares and, you know, was looking online, fire maintenance software, et cetera. And Simpro was coming up all the time and, <laughs> and we looked at Simpro and then I heard that one of our competitive fire companies started using mm. this weird software called ABAS. So I got hold of the founder's name, Aiden, and he came in, did this whole pitch. And yeah, it was like love at first sight. And I was like, oh my God, do you need, a, do you need someone in the team? And he's like, not really. And then I met, I forced him to, forced him to hire me. Yeah, it was pretty fun. So you were the first commercial hire at Uptick. Roy, provide us more insight into what actually meant stepping into the world of sales. Yeah, I was 22 at the time. I was just finishing up a uni and Aiden was just a classic developer founder. Hired a few part-time developers from uni and was coding really and developing the product. And then I was like, Hey, I want to work at this company. What can I do? And mm. I started writing the how-to guides, just here's the manual of how to create a property, etc. And then before I know it, my first role was literally pick up the phone, call a ton of fire companies and organize meetings to bring along the founder to sell. And I could not sell back then, but yeah, my role was just to facilitate the founder to sell, which became a pretty important role at the end of the day. But that's super powerful when you think about it. You effectively started in lead generation, right? Which is a great starting point for people in sales. It's not the easiest thing in the world to cold call someone. You learn to take failure as something that occurs in your job. You'll get no's. You'll get people who hang up on you. That's a powerful thing to learn early on in your career. It's the hardest, it's the hardest role at a company, in my opinion, being an SDR, BDR. Yeah. I still, I struggle in a way to manage SDR and BDR because so I know how hard it is every day to wake up motivated to, like, you've got to do 50 calls. You've got to, you've got to have high energy levels. Otherwise you're probably not going to make, and you're going to get rejected every single day. So I think ha having been that at the start, I know exactly how it is and how every day is different. When people manage SDRs, they just assume they wake up with high energy every single day. And it's never like that ever. Oh, yeah. So it was a super interesting start. <laughs> We're all good. So Going back to the SDR land, mate, you were the first hire, you were just starting out. It's a founder-led organization. So how do you define this playbook? What did it look like back then as you were working along the first SDR in the company? Look, I was so amateur back then, had no idea what I was doing, had no idea what software sales was. Now there's obviously a whole SaaS playbook. I don't consider myself a stereotypical salesperson. I'm not that good with my words. I'm not very convincing necessarily. I think what I was able to do is 
just pick up the phone. I was consistent. I'd be like, hey, I'm doing this amount of calls every single day. I'm doing them at the start of the day. And I was relentless. My biggest deal, my top five to this day was in those early stages. And I just called big CEO. I wasn't scared that he was the CEO of this 300 person company. And I was relentless. And he's like, look, I took your call because you haven't stopped trying to touch base. And that was important to me. And I knew, especially in early days for BDRs, like your role is to get a good salesperson in front of them. I'm not the guy selling the software. Aiden is. And my role was literally just to drive Aiden around, make sure he was there on time and he knew who we're meeting and what to do. So yeah, no playbook vet back then. I think it's literally just pick up that damn phone. To me, that's pretty cool, right? No playbook back then, but what you did is you built that, that right mechanics early on. And you did those difficult things. You made those tough phone calls. You took the reject component. And consistency is something that I don't think we talk about enough in the SaaS world. But consistency, like all things in all businesses, is the key. If you can be consistent at something and you can keep doing those things, and if you understand, and I know you wouldn't have those days, but the base metrics of what you need to achieve and you do it, you just, you figure it out. I will make this many calls and I will do that. Successful follows. I see BDRs now and SDRs now. They procrastinate so much before they pick up the phone. They try look at the internet for this one account and try understand their entire life and what's their favorite color before they pick up the phone. Just pick up the phone, bang, and just get it done. For the old days, we used to travel the highway and take photos of cars as we go past them. Totally, mate. We still do that. (laughs) So, how does one then go from being a first sales hire, from being like a SDR to what you're now the CRO of a business? What was the number of steps I went wrong? What processes and tools have you had to bring in to make sure that success was repeatable? A lot of failure. I was thinking before I jumped on, my biggest skill is not to be scared of failure. I'll just like give stuff a go. Aiden would say, Hey, go do this. I'm like, I've never done that before, but I'd be willing to give it a crack. And I'd fail a ton of times. I think I learned that from being an SD at the start. Like you were going to have mm. some bad sales meetings. You were going to walk out and go, yes, I don't really think I did that well. But as long as you keep learning, you keep evolving, you work it out. So my way is learning by doing. Get out there, get it done, and then we'll learn and work it out from there. So if I could recommend to anyone out there who wants to keep growing, just give things a go, take initiative and the world's your oyster. A company is going to retain their best talent if you're bloody good and they will work out an opportunity for you and make sure that you keep growing. You don't need to come into a company and say, okay, I can work my way up in this company. Trust me, be really good at your job and opportunities will just come. I find it when I interview a lot of people, they're like, oh yeah, but where can I go in this company? If you're good. Trust me, I'll do anything to retain you and I'll find a role for you. I've always been a strong believer when you're thinking about business and in particular, scaling a business, people is your first driver, right? Finding talented people and talented people might just be the hardest working people you can find. People are just going to put in, they're going to not be scared of failure. They're going to put their time and effort in. They're going to go above and beyond. And that doesn't mean people who are working 50 hours a day, which is impossible, but it's people who put that time and effort in, right? They're there when you need them there. They'll answer calls. They get in, they work hard. Those people are always successful income. And they're the people that you want to keep. You'll do what you need to do to make sure that there is a career path. doesn't need to be mapped out. Those people grow organically into, into roles. People say, especially in interviews, right? Especially sales people's interviews. As Ricky, you would know this, but they all say they want it, right? They all can talk the talk, but then which ones can walk the walk? And you'd be surprised how little... The amount of people actually want to go that extra yard. And that's what I've always been surprised at with recruiting. So, oh my God, I've got a select few people that are actually take that extra mile. Most people don't mm. actually want to, but they say they do, mm. but they don't. 
That's a really valid point you bring up. Hiring, especially in sales, can be crucial, but also lots of failures along the way. So do you structure your hiring process, Roy, and what does that look like for you now? Look, I'm the least structured person going around. So to answer your question, no. Um, I think for me, it's all about gut. And this may sound so generic and stuff, Mm. but I've hired a few people from Simbro and they're all not with us. I just assume, hey, they could sell it Simbro, they could sell it Uptick. We're a completely different beat. We don't have a huge inbound kind of marketing funnel. So it's a lot of outbound. Go find your own leads. It's a different culture. I don't know what it was like in Simbro, but let's just assume it's a beautiful playbook. There's no clear playbook. Yeah, you know, it's like you're on your own. I wasn't going to sit with you and onboard you as a salesperson. This is what I need you for your 30, 60, 90 day plan. Go out and get it. And if they needed to be mollycoddled and handheld, they probably wouldn't have lasted. So for me, in, in the interview process, it's really, there's always a beer mm. part in that interview. It's like, go out and have a beer. And it's always worked out with the people that I've actually enjoyed having a beer with are the people that are my best hires. And that may sound mm. stupid, but it's 100% true. We're good mates. And that's so important. I've forgone one hire recently who was actually a really good candidate. He tick every single box, but there was one box that he couldn't tick. And he wasn't my person work with like hand in hand for the next three, four years. Right. And that's really important. We grind and we'll travel a ton. Like you want to do it with people that you love to see mm-hmm. to build this kind of army together. So I, I just want to dig a bit deeper there. You mentioned that something didn't click. What was the biggest red flag for you? You obviously enjoyed the beer and we went well. And then what was that one thing that you just went, nah, it's not going to work. Yeah, it's so hard to nail down. And it's weird when you provide the feedback. Mm. Technically, everything sounds good. I'm just so big on, on gut. And you walk away and go, would we ride and die together? And yeah, obviously, that doesn't mean hiring. I've fallen into this trap as a leader where I just want to hire like little, like Roy's. I just want to hire people like me. And I've learned the hard way. That's not always the case. But it's just whether or not we respect each other within that first meeting and beyond. They're listening. They want to be coached. That's really important. A lot of sales guys, they come in with a lot of confidence. And that's always scary for me. It's just, hey, I'm happy for you to be confident, but there's a fine line. And if you feel like in your gut that they cross that line, they'll cross that line every single day and they won't be that coachable. And that's really hard to manage as a manager. So for me, it's like just a little bit of of non-confidence, a little bit of, hey, I really want to learn. From you, from the rest of the team, I think that's really important. It makes you feel any better, mate. I'm pretty much hired the exact same way. Yeah. Driven by guards. Really hard to explain why this person is or isn't a good fit. I think that it's being told with people that you're going to work with super closely is important, right? Because that connection you have with people is what allows you to work harder and faster. And if you can build that sort of bond with your employees, then they will work harder. They will give more. And the more that people put into something, the faster it scales, the more successful it's going to be. And I guess my one question for you is, how do you scale that? Because hiring by gut becomes difficult to do when you're now onboarding 35 people a week or 50 people a month. And so then you, you get caught in this bit where either you're going to increase your failure rate because no longer can you rely on gut and you're going to need structure and stuff, or you need to be involved in every single one of these meetings and have a lot of beer every week. Yeah, completely agree. And that's the big question. You guys would probably be better at answering this, having been at Simpro, a bigger company. But we're getting close to, to the hundred people. And just to be clear, like I've failed more than I've succeeded with my highest hundred percent. So I think you guys would completely agree with this is my leaders under me and the leaders in the company, the SLTs, they have learned the way you hire and understand what we're trying to build. And I trust them wholeheartedly. I've got a sales leader in Australia. I've got a sales leader in the UK. 
I trust them. They know exactly what we're trying to build and they've seen the failures and seen the successes and know exactly what the difference is. So that's the biggest thing. The next level is like you can trust them because what you've done and understand how you've led them and they want to lead the rest. If you circle that back, because look, it's the same answer I'd give. It's trust, right? If you yeah. have done the work when you hire those directly below you and you've done the gut checks and you've had a beer and you've built this relationship, then it stands to reason should trust their ability to hire people below them. And they should be doing similar stuff and, and you accept failure because failure is going to happen in hiring because people want a job. So they're going to put their best foot forward and you can't be 100% right. Neither can you gut. People use the word culture all the time. I hate the word because it's a nebulous of all things. Yeah. But if everyone's walking in the same direction and understands what it is you're trying to achieve and they have that passion and that love, then nine times out of ten, they're going to be able to bring you the people that you're looking for. Totally, totally. Just quickly on that, I'm a higher, slow, fire fast type person. And this may sound crude to a lot of people, but if your gut feel is telling you within the first few months, make moves as quickly as possible. See the red flags and just make the call. Trust me, don't wait post probation and stuff. It can get messy. And then hire slowly, take the time. And one of my favorite things, and I've actually had recruiters get angry at me about this, but with salespeople, you talk about structure, Ricky. I love to not follow up with the sales candidates. I love to like just go a bit cold and after an interview, wait five days, essentially. And if they don't follow up with me, that's not a good salesperson. My biggest skill as a salesperson is following up, right? If they don't send an email, post the call saying, hey, thanks for your time. And then three days yeah. later, they haven't heard from you and they haven't followed up. Are they a salesperson? I don't know. You've now you put it out to the world. Everyone who's going to go for a job, you're like, and I have to email it. I think, like, honestly, those, if I can think back, those sales nighters mm. all did that. They were all on me, even pre-interview that they knew. Like, they, they email, they're like, can't wait, them text me, et cetera. Yeah. Those are the ones that are hungry. The other ones are just going with emotions and hoping. Go, makes ton of sense. Switch it up a little bit. Going back to uptick, obviously, you got motion and order. Australia business is going really well. Then you pack your bags and come to the UK. Why and how did you pick UK? What was the thesis behind it? And how do you even get started when in a new market? What did that process look like for you and Uptick? Yeah, I mean, Uptick's gone through a journey. Firstly, it wasn't all roses and butterflies for a long time. We tried to do everything, build three products at the same time with three different markets. So those are the first six years, just trying to work out where's the biggest TAM, how can we sell? I was a terrible salesperson back then. I was not focused. I didn't have playbooks. I wasn't consistent, et cetera. 2019, just before COVID, we really focused on the fire industry. So we were super focused on who we're going after, our market segment, et cetera. So that really helped us focus and to create like a really solid and consistent sales playbook, everything, onboarding, customer success was all the same. We're talking to the same people. Once that really clicked, then the sales pipeline was starting to grow. Our growth, our metrics was just sublime. And it was time to focus on where else we're going to see that growth rate for the next two, three years. We had a big investment from XLKR, large private equity company. And we knew that, hey, we can either go different verticals in Australia and stay there, or we need to just stay hyper-focused and enter a new market. And we decided to, because of what we learned the previous years, stay as a fire maintenance software for now. That is what we do really well. There's a lot of other job management softwares out there that you're probably going to have to compete with, pricing, et cetera. And we knew we did fire well. So that led us to look at North America or the UK, mainly because similar kind of English speaking countries and obviously big markets. The UK was four times bigger in our space, 
US was 10 times bigger. Obviously, we saw the green pastures in the US, which is super exciting. Excel Cloud based out there. But UK for our market is super similar. Just the way the industry works and also the competitor landscape. We saw there was a real gap of just niche software for that specific industry. It was never like, hey, go out there on June 1st of 2022 and land expand. It was always like, hey, let's just try to get a few clients. I was literally in my bedroom, 11 p.m., just doing demos, not knowing what I'm doing at all, just trying to sell the vision and try to get five customers. We were able to get five customers from the bedroom and that's when it changed. So I hired one BDR to just get me discoveries and I got my five customers. And then we had to somehow onboard them. Absolute shit show. <laughs> Took us 12 months. But in that time, we're like, okay, well, we've got five customers. I'm going to go over there on the ground and just get started. So you kind of built effectively a model. I know you didn't sit down and write it up, but you guys tested, you got some customers, you made some mistakes in onboarding. And while doing that, you learned, okay, what if there are differences in product or methodology or workflow? You sold them and then you went, okay, I'm going to go over there and lead the ship, get on the ground, get people on board and start going out and, and hitting the paper. Obviously there were a few key hires. A lot of people hire a bit too early, I believe. You can't just hire someone, kick and hope and assume they're just going to sell your product. You really mm. need the old days when I would take Aiden around. I need to be in every single meeting to sell the vision. What's this Australian guy talking to a British company about this software that we've never heard about? If it was a Brit talking about it. They don't talk the way I talk because I've had all the history with it. So I was really able to sell the vision. Number one, super important. Number two, getting on the ground was like the most important thing. Like you're able to touch a bill, but also number three was I knew for six months, I had five customers that I'm talking to and they jumped onto the vision. So they knew we weren't perfect, but they were buying into what we're trying to build. And that was gigantic for us. We could just like hand in hand work on this together. And they knew that. And that meant they're at by far and away, like on the best pricing possible. And that was fine. They were a loss leader and yeah. they were the best yeah. loss leaders we could have ever invested in. Hmm. Yeah. And they become your champions too, right? Because they've been on this journey with you. They've rolled gold, rusted onto the brand. They'll sing about it from the rooftops. Studies, everything. I had one key hire in the UK, a salesperson who came from the industry, which is another one. I don't think you could just hire a salesperson and just assume they could sell to your industry in the UK, for example, but he was hungry, motivated. I was obviously very lucky because he's amazing. He's my next leader over here, but he was a gun and yeah, he made mm. my life that much easier. That's awesome, mate. Great to hear. So COVID obviously took place right when you expanding and going across to the UK and stuff. What changes did that bring in your approach when it came to selling and what changes have then become permanent in your approach since? This may sound a bit generic, but I could do five meetings in one day. It was huge. <laughs> Before then, selling to a Sydney, I would literally say, hey, I'm coming to Sydney in four weeks' time. And I would bunch them all up and I'd be driving around Sydney for two days with Aiden. All of a sudden, like the cadence of meetings that I'm able to do skyrocketed. That was the biggest change by a mile. We can do five to six discoveries and demos a day. They really pack your calendar. For me, I look at the health of my sales guys and girls, how packed the calendar is. If there's really not a lot of discoveries and demos, then there's a lot of time in between to do revenue generating activity. And if they're not growing the pipeline, then they're not being productive. So it's a Monday morning right now. We have our sales team meeting. We pull up the calendars. That's the health of the, of the company. If we've got a lot of discoveries and demos, I mean, pipelines is going, we're pushing sales down the funnel. If they're empty, 
fine, you've got a lot of chance to generate revenue, but make sure they're focusing on that. Nice. Then let's talk more about that then. One of the things that I think you've done a LinkedIn post about is multi-year contracts. You've got a bit of some beef against multi-year contracts. Fill us as to why that is and why do you think they're so wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll be as politically correct as possible, but in our small industry, we sell to companies that are looking for better software potentially, and are just looking for what else is out there. And then if they come across a software that they think could help them better than their current software, then they should be able to jump across. Maybe a small kind of penalty fee for jumping across from a contract to contract commercially. I get that. But signing up small to medium-sized companies on five-year contracts and not allowing them to jump across, for me, is not serving the customers in their best interest. And at the end of the day, you know, we've had obviously customers wanting to leave to Simpro, for example, and find Simpro is better suited to them. For our brand, I would rather shake hands, not even charge them and say, hey, go to Simpro. We tried, but we weren't the right software for you. Having said that, obviously you're trying to retain them if you're the right software, but if you're not, let them go, leave a good taste in their mouth and yours. Get, we signed three-year contracts, but you can get out of it and give us a, a three-month warning and find you're out. I don't think we've ever charged people to get out because at the end of the day, it's just our brand credibility that we want to retain. And they've clearly decided that they can go to a better software and that's fine. So it's not so much the length of contract, it's more the arbitrary locking component that you're finding. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is hard when you're a small business owner and you're incentivized into signing a longer term contract, you don't usually think about what if it goes wrong. So that's really get your point there. Let's say you signed the contract a year ago. If you add more users, those new users are in a new five-year contract. So it doesn't all get synced to the start date of the contract. For me, that's a bit sly. I get upset by that. I'm obviously commercially minded and I want us to retain all our customers always, but I just want what's right for the customer and your customers, if they're super happy with the terms, they will stay. We have to retain them and make them happy. We have to come up with product updates. We have to keep our customer support teams up and running. Otherwise they'll jump across. There'll always be a better competitor out there. Hey, put your money where your mouth is, serve the customers. It's a hugely important point because obviously in our Current roles, Ricky and I spend a lot of time speaking to SaaS companies that are up and coming in that early stage of the adventure where you were a few years back when you guys were going through some of this thought pattern. And that understanding of serving the customer is super important, right? Because the SaaS model is built on being able to add on revenue from a customer because it's the cheapest source of revenue. But you can't do that if your customers are unhappy. And so that drive and leverage that you're getting from having no locking effectively means you've got to stay sharp, right? You've got to be putting time, effort, and money into your customer success and support and making sure that customers are getting utilization out of your software, not just paying you a fee for no reason. Oh, no locking contracts is a big kind of selling point for us. It's like, hey, come on, you're unhappy. Our software is very sticky. We've got amazing retention rates and they're not just going to jump software. They've selected your software for a reason. They're going to give it their best shot. And you're yeah. also going to give it your best shot to retain them. So if it doesn't work out, move on. And that's fine. Yeah. Do the right thing by the customer. Hey, Ricky, yeah. to international expansion. For our mm. first, even 18 months, our mantra as a team when we came to the UK was win 20 customers and make them your biggest advocates. Just focus on 20 customers. They'll make sure they are super happy. And if they're super happy, I don't need a marketing team. They are my marketing team and was a big piece of our success here. They were probably all lost leaders, but make sure that those 20 customers are singing our praises. I, th I think a lot of people, especially in growth roles, forget about that. But as a growth manager there, I was just as involved in making sure our 20 customers were happy. I was not going to get any new revenue 
but boy oh boy did it help because they were yeah. happy and it was everything so it. when looking back at those early customers was it a case of win them at all costs were you providing additional discounts were you doing additional training or whatever it took in order to get them from a pricing perspective, long-term, hopefully you sign them up on the retail pricing. You, know, you don't want to money your pricing too early in a new market. They'll get it discounted for the first few years. At the end of the day on the contract, it says the full price because they will end up going on the full price. I'll give you an example. We've got a minimum price. You have to pay 500 pounds per month. If you're under five users, you still have to pay 500 pounds per month. And we would come across many small customers, right? Two, three users. They want to pay 200, 300 pounds. We do not go under that minimum as a baseline, but in the UK, because we weren't known, we just needed a new logo to build our brand. So we are like, look, you'll pay for your users 200 pounds a month for the first 12 months. But then by then you're fully onboarded. I'm sure you've grown because we're only bringing on people that want to grow. Then you're going up to our standard minimum and that kind of worked really well. And they've all grown since that was a big one. Oh, and nice. they tie your success to their success in the way totally. you're selling. Hey. As you succeed and you will using our software, you onboard this properly, you put the work in, we'll put the work in, you will grow. And so will we. This is another thing good that you mentioned. We came up with customer profiles and especially for small customers, it can be a lot of work, just as much work as a medium sized yeah. company, right? But they More. don't have the time because they don't have the time to onboard, etc. We came up with two customers in them. We got a tortoise, a tricky tortoise and an innovative iguana. Tricky tortoise and ones that don't really want to grow, they struggle to even log in on your Zoom and they were just hard in the sales process. They went in the tricky tortoise bucket. We probably didn't provide this insulin because we weren't going after those type of customers. They won't be huge advocates because they won't use the system. We were going after innovative iguanas, especially the younger type companies that just started on their own, want to grow. And in 12 months time, they want to add two, three employees. And we asked those questions. And if they want to grow, they're in that bucket. And those are the ones that were seeing appraisers. I love that. That's cool. That customer profiling is super important, right? Like understanding what you're going after and having a really good understanding of this will fit our software. This fits our growth pattern. These people, when we put the time and effort into them, pay off, right? So, so that, that is important. It's so easy to go after the small, the yeah. tricky tortoises. They're probably our biggest challenge by a mile. And uh, we brought in a new head of UK, a RevOps person. We looked at all the data from onboarding, see what took a long time. Then we created the customer types and that was everything for the sales team. Mate, well, now that you've found all the success in the UK market, are you way more selectful when it comes to your ICP and are you willing to let deals go? And when is the right time to let a deal go? And you just go, don't touch it. Even though they're making all the buying signals, do you tell your team that's not worthwhile chasing? It's everything. It's just everything and it's hard. And that's where it comes down to hiring the right team. It starts from me as the sales leader to go, guys, like I know this commission involved myself included in a team. We have commission on anything paid, right? So if we sign a huge customer, but they will never pay us mm -hmm. or it's paid within the first 12 months. So if they take nine months to onboard and they've delayed it, you only get paid for three months. There's a huge incentive there to bring on the right type of customer. So those incentives are completely aligned. And secondly. In the UK, we're a team of 20 people. You're not just a sales team. You're a customer team. Everyone's helping everyone. If you bring on someone that's shit, you're ruining someone else's life. So there's a bit of emotion in it. It's making sure that we bring on the right people. Um, and it starts from the culture. It's like, guys, we could probably try and squeeze, what is it? A screwing square hole or whatever, but it's just not worth it in the long run and our resources. So when you do bring a good one and a good juicy, large sales customer, We'll all be too busy trying to onboard this big tortoise. 
Nice. I do want to circle back. You mentioned something about activities and revenue generation activities for the sales reps and how important that is. So which metrics as a sales leader do you prioritize the most for your reps? Cool. I love talking about this stuff. I'm sure you do too, Ricky. It's just a pyramid and it's nothing crazy. It's deals closed at the top, then it's pipeline generation, and then it's activity at the bottom. What are we actually doing as a sales team? So calls, emails, meetings, et cetera. Just happened naturally if everything at the bottom mm. and then in the middle happens. My biggest health metric that allows me to forecast really well is pipeline. And we are very meticulous on what we put in the pipeline and what we don't. So if we go and meet with a customer and everything is tick the box, but we just don't have the right person in the room, they won't be adding mm. to the pipeline yet. I keep it as simple as possible. I just do bands, budget, authority, needs, yeah. timing. If those four are ticked off, then they can be creating a deal in the pipeline. So if my pipeline is growing, and I know that we've been very disciplined with what's going in and that your conversion rates are high, right? Or that at least they're staying consistent. We close around 35% of deals. We do discovery for we'll close. If you've got a handle on your conversion rates, then your conversion rate in your pipeline is all you need to know to forecast the next six to nine to 12 months. So for me, if pipeline is growing, it means we're booking a ton of discoveries. We're doing a ton of activities, et cetera. Again, I don't put like, crazy emphasis and calls and emails if everything else is going well. So that's what I also tell myself. Mm -hmm. I will work down the pyramid in that order. And if everything is healthy up the top, the bottom part I'm not really looking at, to be honest. That's how I look yeah, at it. That all makes sense. And you mentioned a number of things in there. And one of the things that I picked up on, you said, are we talking to the right person and the organization? So who is the right person? I think that's half the debate sometimes. Is it the person that you're talking to? Is it going to be the champion or is it the economic buyer who's actually going to sign the contract? How do you define that when you're actually working through with your reps and teams? Obviously, it depends on size of the business. An enterprise company, you may want to speak to the champion many times, but it still shouldn't be creating a deal until you know that they're the ones signing off on the deal. So for me, it's whoever actually is the economic buyer. Who's the one signing off on it? If it's a CFO, the CFO needs to be in that meeting to make sure that the CFO is on board. The CFO could have created his budget for the next two years and there's actually no chance of getting a budget in. So for me, it's all about the economic buyout. Obviously, you want to speak to the champions as much as possible, multi-threads, talk to a ton of people. But boy, oh boy, we've had some big enterprise companies mm -hmm. that are in the pipeline so juicy and then all of a sudden the CFO or the CEO waltz in and they're like, guys, like, there's no way we're getting this done this year. And you're like, We've had 10 meetings with the service manager or the head of operations, the COO, and it's still not the right person to be speaking to. Yeah. Okay, mate, just maybe switch it up again. So you talked about compensation and designing that effectively, right? You talked about you only get paid and your team's only get paid when the deal goes live. So what is your process in aligning the comp structure for sellers in the organization? Is it simple as you get paid when the you know, customer pays or is there more thoughts and process behind it? I, I'm a big believer in keeping it as simple as possible. The second the spreadsheet gets way too complicated, you're opening a can of worms. Having been at BDR and a BDM and a senior BDM and a manager, I know what incentivizes each role. And I know that simplicity is key. They want to like calculate in their head after a deal is done as a sweep. That's $2,000 bang. So that's number one. Keep it simple. It incentivizes them more. If it's complicated, it's a six and 7% between this and 8% on this accelerator. That's tough to, tough to calculate. Secondly, it's completely aligning with the company. Hey, we can pay you more because we're paying it on cash. Um, we only pay on the first 12 months on the first billing day. So if it, there's a delay, 
for six months, you'll only get six months instead of the 12. So you're incentivized to bring in the right people that can be onboarded well. Otherwise you're just stat padding. You're just making yourself look good, getting a deal closed, but it goes nowhere into your pocket. And you can do that for as long as you want, but you'll just get demotivated. Yeah. And then for the BDRs, SDRs, it's not on discoveries booked, it's on deals created and they're fine with the discipline mm. shown by the BDMs. Sorry, mate, that wasn't a decision maker. Everything's ticked off, but I can't create a deal yet because the band's not ticked off. So you won't get that until the deal, everyone wants to book discoveries, but it's actually how many deals were created from your discoveries. And mm. the last one is for the SDRs, I found this really difficult to try and incentivize. How many deals did you create? 20, cool, here's a check and whatever. And then they also get percentage on the deal. So they get a much smaller percentage, but completely hand in hand with the BDM to make sure we're closing big deals. And then they get more excited about getting bigger deals in because what's the difference between a big deal and a small deal if they're just getting paid on the deal being created? Yeah. So yeah, I like that. Nice. That's a good model. Revenue share. I was going to ask you another question, but we're going to probably skip that. You're going to be like, we're going to hit him up for one percentage of sales. He's getting paid in cash. Uh, yell at me for all the years I paid you nothing. Is that where you were going? All right, mate, this is a rabbit hole we can get into. I was going to ask him about callbacks and when is the right time to do callback and what if seller does all the right thing, but the customer still walks away because they've had a bad implementation journey. These are good questions. I don't do callbacks. I think they get too complicated. They've come and paid for six months and then left. You got paid in six months. Yeah. You just won't get paid the rest. And yeah. the other thing is, okay. think about this and you guys would know about it. We're trying to increase our gross margins for setup and stuff. We're trying to set up way too low. We're losing so much money. But that's where we put a lot of our resources for these trade companies. So we increased our setup prices. And that's the first thing that goes out the window when you're selling, hey, I'll discount setup. I just want the monthly return. 100%. But now, obviously, in this market, it's super important. And we all care about it as an executive team. We built the culture. We don't get commission on setup, but we get a huge threat of charging big setups and getting it through. And that may sound counterintuitive because they're salespeople. They just want commission on everything. I thought that. And before we know it, we're like, no, we actually just care about the monthly recurring. We always have because it's what our quota is all about. And uh, that's another thing from a culture perspective. Bring the right salespeople. Keep your quotas completely attainable. Like completely attainable. Let them smash their quotas. And uh, you don't have to put commission on everything. That's part of the world sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That. Cap commission or uncapped? No, uncapped. Does anyone do cap commission? Give me some cars. Give me some cars. Really? You want to say to people, can you not sell any more? Because I don't want any more than a month. Yeah, funny one. People ask me the interview process. The caps are uncapped. Nice. Okay. So we'll tackle one of the hot takes. So you've been an SDR, BDR, you've played every single role. Where should the SDR and BDRs be reporting into sales or marketing? And if so, why? Yeah, I only took over the marketing department because we just had our head of marketing leave and we didn't hire straight away. And all of a sudden I was managing that team. I'm not a marketing guru at all. I've actually got a really good fractional CMO at the moment that works a day a week. It's incredible. I'm head of growth. Sales and marketing is one team. We're one Slack channel. We're all working together towards a common goal. And Ricky, you're big on this and I'm huge on this. If your marketing team is in a silo on the side, it's a complete waste. Your BDRs and SDRs are literally the marketing team out there, like 70% outbound company. That outbound is marketing. <laughs> They're calling people and marketing our software. It's the same stuff and it separate the two, not looking at it. Great. 
Uh, I've got so many questions for you, but we'll go through that another time. One of our board members said this to me, who used to be a big CRO, as I was taking the plunge to this new kind of role as a leader is to make sure the boat is over the fish. And if you're fishing in the wrong spot, you're not going to catch any fish. But if you're fishing in the right place with the right tools, with the right rod, you will catch fish. And that's my role. My role every day is to wake up, review HubSpot, ensure that the BDRs and SDRs, are, the quality of leads that they're connecting with is high. Lead scoring is huge for me. And I've got this whole equation of how to score leads. That is a big piece of the puzzle to make sure that they're prioritizing the top leads rather than the bottom leads. And then same thing for BDMs as well, to make sure that they're targeting the right people at the right time is what I'm huge on. All the good stuff. Seems like you, you've got it all under control. No. So we're probably no always. Just on this right now, our marketing department, yeah, for a hundred person company is zero, right? We don't have one marketing person in that role. And I haven't had a person in that role for the last three months. I'm posting the LinkedIn posts of our company. My BDRs and BDMs are the ones like they've got content license on LinkedIn. They're liking on behalf of Uptick and commenting on behalf of Uptick. I think it's super important that you're still doing the doing in some way or form and your team will love you and appreciate you. And also you don't need to outsource everything. Like you can do so much mm -hmm. more than you think. Absolutely. That's so very well said and I couldn't agree with it anymore. We can probably move to quick five questions, mate. Here they come. If you really re-ask these, every guest who pops on. Favorite sports team? It's oh, a hard question. It's a lot, but at the moment, because I'm in the UK, I go for United, Manchester United, but uh, yeah. I'm just you're in the UK. What about back home? I'm a Hawthorne Hawks fan. And that's why he's jumped on United's Hawks suck. So yeah, <laughs> doing a lot of potential. Mate. Yeah. My team's my team has the most potential, mate. So it's, uh, I love we're it. not. I love it. We're not last anymore. Good, win, good last win on the weekend. Good win on the weekend, mate. Uh, so it's the most excited I've been in two years. Yeah. <laughs> good. Uh, Favorite music genre? I'm not a music buff no. at all. Whatever Discover Weekly says, no. I don't even know what genre it is. Brilliant. The favorite movie. Any documentary, any sports documentary. I just watched the oh, Stephen yeah. Curry one, Ricky, you'd like it. It's on Apple. Oh, I watched it. I'm the right Plus he's watched it, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good. Stephen Curry, honestly, to... is the coolest story ever. Just the way he was drafted, the way he was unseen. Duke, the best college, had him on their watch list. And they're like, this guy will never be a no, thing. He's, he's, on the he's on the podcast list. Favorite place to visit? Favorite yeah. place to visit Greece by a mile. That's I would have yeah, got McDonald's or something like that, but fair, fair. Yeah, Sean, you're going to do the last one, mate. Because uh, this is the most important one, right? There's only one right important. answer. Yeah. This yeah. is the crux of the podcast. We leave it to the end, but it is really what this podcast is all about. Peanut butter, for you, is it crunchy or smooth? Yeah, there's one right answer. It's crunchy, and I'm sure you probably don't showcase the, the smooth one. You probably don't allow nah. smooth peanut butter people to. Yeah. We probably cancel that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We just yeah, edit it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see my voice over the top, it'll be yeah, it'll be someone talking in an American accent or British accent, then what was a bit crunchy over the top. Classic, classic.